Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This is Amy Bird, and I'm with my co-hosts, Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. And as I'm reading the news today, guys, um, I really thought about you two. This pastor, John Mercury Morgan, wowed another sea of onlookers in Rochester, New York, for his latest stunt. He rode his bicycle over 1,000 Bibles before riding through a wall of flames. That sounds like something you do, Todd. I am all about that. I'm PCA. We do that kind of stuff all the time. It's the extraordinary means of grace. That's what we call it. It is. We don't, listen, PCA, we're not going to mess around with the boring, ordinary means of grace, baby. We've got the extraordinary means of grace. So, yeah. And I bet you'd be smoking your pipe while you were doing it just to make it that much more challenging. Without a doubt. I'm not Baptist anymore. Yeah, and I mean, hey, he did hand out all 1,000 Bibles when he was done, so there you go. that yeah. is being on fire for the Lord. The ends justify the means, baby. <laughs> all right, well, um, I was also looking on my Twitter news feed, and I, I found an interesting topic for us to talk about today. Um, it was a tweet by Carl Ellis, and he says this, evangelicalism is as much of a culture as it is a theological movement. What do you think about that? I think he's right. Yeah. Carl? <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I think, I mean, some of us have been saying this for mm-hmm. a long time. Right. Part of the, one could even question his tweet on the grounds when he said, as much a culture as a theological movement, the use of the singulars there. Mm. Is evangelicalism even a single definable culture? Right. Is it mm. even a single definable theological movement? Seems to me that part of the problem with evangelicalism is everybody assumes it exists, everybody <laughs> assumes it has a fundamental unity, but actually when you ask that question, well, what does its existence look like? You're really looking at a, a fairly pluriform. Right. Phenomenon, not something that is easily isolatable as a single culture or a single mm-hmm. set of theological beliefs or propositions. Right. So, for instance, you have charismatic evangelicals, you have predestinarian evangelicals, you've got conservative evangelicals, you've got progressive evangelicals. It's pretty broad, in fact, broad enough to make it difficult really to tack down. And that's why, again, back to your statement, Carl confessionally reformed types haven't been calling themselves evangelical for quite some time. I mean, we quit, you know, confessionally evangelical folks quit, confessionally Protestant folks quit (laughs) evangelicalism, quit evangelicalism long before Lecrae did, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes to the heart of the, you know, again, to the heart of the question is, what is evangelicalism? Right. It's, where does it exist? Yeah. Most people attend churches. You know, Christians attend churches. Christians belong to congregations or denominations that have a very clear material existence. They're definable. You can point to them. You can drive past the places where they meet on a Sunday. Evangelicalism lacks, I think, any 
anything like that. Mm-hmm. You it has have, more of a, a nominalist view of the church. Yeah, you have a collection of, say, publications and publishing houses and organizations that call themselves evangelical. But it's not entirely clear to me what it is in which they are participating to be able to call themselves that. Yeah. Is there an ideal evangelicalism in which they all participate that makes the name meaningful when applied to them? Right. You know, if Joel Osteen is an evangelical and D.A. Carson is an evangelical, what are we talking about? What is it that binds them yeah. together? Yeah. It seems to me little more than the fact that they seem to have a passionate enthusiasm for what they believe, mm-hmm. which is not enough to... To justify, I think, talking about a movement evangelicalism. Right. So, and again, to your point, Robert Jeffries at First Baptist Dallas is an evangelical. Jim Wallace of Sojourners is an evangelical. How do you make sense out of that? Yeah. How do you make sense out of people who have such divergent views? So, Carl, historically, where did the term evangelical come from? Well, it's used. It is used fairly early on. Right. I mean, I would describe myself as, as an evangelical with a small e mm-hmm. to refer to the fact that I belong to one of the magisterial Protestant traditions stemming from the Reformation. Right. Just did this book with my friend Bob Kolb, and, and that's the point we make in the introduction there, that there's a sense in which we're both happy to call ourselves evangelical with a small e. Essentially, that means gospel people. Right. We believe the gospel as it was broadly defined by the magisterial reformers of the 16th century. It's really in the 18th and 19th century that evangelicalism with a big E starts to emerge as a specific phenomenon on the religious scene, really flowing out of the revivals, you know, Jonathan mm-hmm. Edwards, George Whitfield, the Methodist New England revivals give great impetus to this. It's really from then on that it becomes a significant player. And, of course, what it does, certainly, as, as it comes out of the revivals, is it downplays the importance of denominations mm-hmm. and sees unity or a commonality of spirit as transcending denominational boundaries. And on one level, when we say that's not a bad thing in and of itself, we do want to be able to express our Christian unity with Christian brothers and sisters across the denominational spectrum where we share belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But evangelicalism, big E, I think at some point, probably in the 20th century, to put it really bluntly, became big business, Right. became mm-hmm. significant because of the, the power and the money that it generated for certain people who have a vested interest in its existence, mm-hmm. if I could put mm-hmm. it that way. Right. Yeah, right. Most of us beaver away in tiny sectarian denominations. The temptations are small. The rewards are small. <laughs> when you start dealing with some of these big organizations, Billy Graham organization, that kind of thing, the possibilities for personal advancement uh, much, much greater. Mm-hmm. Right. And wasn't it, speaking of Billy Graham, was it George Marsden a number of years back who defined an evangelical as anyone who likes Billy Graham? I think if, if Marsden <laughs> didn't say that, he should have. Um, <laughs> Carl, um, I just started reading yesterday the book that you mentioned that you co-authored with Robert Kolb. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, it's a new book put out by Baker called Between Wittenberg and Geneva, Lutheran and Reformed Theology and Conversation. And Carl, you wrote, you wrote it along with Bob Cole, who is a, a well-known conservative Lutheran scholar. You wrote the preface, and one of the things you write is, neither tradition, speaking of confessional Lutheranism and confessional Reformed 
traditions. Neither tradition is really part of the broader movement of capital E evangelicalism, which has its roots in the revivals and revivalism of the 18th century. Evangelical, and this is key, evangelicalism tends to regard as matters of little importance those things that are vital to the confessional traditions of the Lutheran and Reformed churches. And so in those matters of vital importance, we're talking about our understanding of the sacraments, of ecclesiology, church governance, and polity. Even when it comes to when we get into issues of the sacraments, we're talking about things like the body of Christ. And by that, I mean literally, you know, like not the church, but but the nature of Christ and, and his presence among his people in the sacraments. These things matter. These things really matter. And so if you are, for instance, a very, very large and massive parachurch organization, which tends to identify with conservative evangelicalism, even kind of predestinarian evangelicalism, and you go to the extent of having a network of churches and writing a catechism even, but you downplay ecclesiology, sacraments, and some of those other issues, that may be fine if you consider yourself part of broader evangelicalism, but if you're a if you're a confessionally reformed church, that should present a challenge for you, I would think. Yeah, and I think that there are a couple of things to pick up on there. I mean, on one level, the idea of co-belligerence, the idea of expressing in some sense our unity with Christian brothers and sisters across the denominational spectrum, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. To some extent, though, I think the problem comes when it's where do you root your identity? If you see your denominational commitment, your confessional commitment to your denomination as being uh, merely incidental or of secondary Mm -hmm. importance, and your primary identity as being rooted in the big parachurch confederation in which you're involved, then I think the kind of problems that you're describing uh, pop up. I mean, all three of us are are happy we you know, this is an Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals right. podcast. All three of us are happy to share platforms with yep. people with whom we disagree on mm. those very issues, sacraments, yeah. baptism, etc., etc. And we're not in any way desiring to deny the legitimacy of the Christian faith right. of those people. But on the other hand, we do want to say that you know, with the best will in the world, much as I love the Alliance, it is of secondary importance to me sure. compared to my local church and denominational mm-hmm. commitment. Because yeah. ultimately, every Christian has to have a view on baptism. Yeah. Every Christian has to have a view on the Lord's Supper. To have no opinion on these things is to have an opinion on them. Right. And these are things that are important in Scripture. And we need to be careful in the way we we stand shoulder to shoulder with people that we don't do it in a way that denies that basic biblical mm-hmm. truth. Right. Well, isn't it more authentically ecumenical to have that denominational platform and to be confessional? about what our views are on the sacraments when we're talking to those whom we disagree with? Yeah. I think true ecumenism has to be churchly. Mm-hmm. Right. Has to be churchly. Okay, so, so unpack that for a second, because I think that's a really important point here, because, you know, each of us, and we even on this program, have had people that we have profound disagreements with that we interview on a particular subject. Yeah. That kind of thing. You know, Carl, you write for First Things, yeah, which is a wonderful publication, but they invited you to write for them specifically because you are a reformed presbyterian yeah i mean take my friend fran meyer who's the you know he's the right-hand man at the archbishop of philadelphia he said to me just the other week said the thing i like about you and katrina is your conviction presbyterians when we're talking it's not that the things that we disagree on don't matter 
Right. We understand where they are. We understand they're important, but we can still have dialogue and conversation without pretending that our distinctives don't matter. And I think that's an important point. And again, perhaps in the wider culture in which we now live in, where disagreement, principal disagreement is often seen as oppressive in some way. Mm-hmm. You can't disagree with somebody without mm-hmm. it being taken as a, a personal dislike or affront. Right. I think we right. need to we need to get beyond that. I have no trouble in relating. In fact, I have more trouble relating to people who say they believe something, but then seem to hold it rather loosely Mm -hmm. than I do in engaging with somebody who has particular convictions and is willing to stand by them, even as they relate to me in a polite, decent and friendly manner. Right, right. Okay. Still on the same kind of topic, but maybe shifting gears a little bit. I've had a thought all this month, and I really spent some time thinking about it yesterday and this morning as well. Yesterday was, you know, Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday of of October, where Reformed churches typically celebrate, you know, the beginning of the Reformation, even though it's hard to tack when the Reformation began. But nevertheless, uh, the church has kind of agreed upon the last Sunday of October. And this year, it's the, you know, the 500th anniversary. And one of the things that has been interesting to me is looking across the landscape of evangelical churches, pastors, seminaries, celebrating the 500th anniversary this year of the Protestant Reformation. Among those churches and seminaries and and pastors are those who would never allow Calvin or Luther or John Knox to join their faculty to join their church, and in some cases not even have communion in their church because of their convictions, say, about baptism. And yet, some of these very seminaries are rah-rah, Luther and Calvin, but those men would not be welcome as members of their churches. Yeah, I think that's a a great example of sort of how figures and ideas are received in Mm -hmm. history. There's a very eclectic approach. I mean, I've been blasted by a couple of characters on Twitter for A couple of times on first things, I pointed out that, you know, Luther was not big on Baptists. So it's somewhat (laughs) ironic to see Baptists celebrating Luther. Zwingli wasn't big on them either. There were fatal consequences for being a Baptist (laughs) in Zwingli's Zurich. And that's not to say I approve in any way whatsoever of that, but it's it's a mere point of historical fact. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you point that out, you get a huge backlash. And That's a reminder again to us, I think, of how consumerist in some ways modern American Mm -hmm. evangelicalism has become, that you can look back at history and you pick the things you like off the shelf Mm -hmm. and you leave the other bits behind. And one of the things I try to do in my teaching of the Reformation is to say, you know, this is not unmitigated disaster, nor is it an unmitigated triumph. It is part of the church's history, and we have to critically engage with it in order to learn both from its strengths and its weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Anybody who glories in the fact that the church now exists in a thousand or a million little pieces, (laughs) I think is missing the point. Right. But that is Mm -hmm. a real problem when when Catholics hit back and say, well, Protestantism just leads to to total denominational chaos. They actually have a point. Right. (laughs) just because they're Catholics saying that doesn't mean it's not a good argument. Right. So I, I think what you're pointing to, Todd, is the whether it's an American tendency or just a natural human tendency, probably the latter, of us to look back in history to find things that confirm our contemporary identity. Yeah. 
rather than addressing history as it is, far more messy and complicated usually right. than people, people care to make it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think another aspect is if, if you fail to identify confessionally and subscribe in that way, you become no more than just like a collection of individuals. And you see this. It's like, um, I think part of the culture of evangelicalism <laughs> is this authoritarianism, but it's, it's not so much churchly, it's more powerful personalities. Right. Top men, thinkers, charismatic leaders, things like that. And there's less critical thinking, as you're saying, Carl, and engagement and thinkers. And I think this is why some people are getting upset with evangelicalism more so now as political culture is heating up is that they're kind of dismissed more Mm. for having thoughts. Well, and again, I think some of the thing that has caused some fresh or some gasoline to be thrown on the fire of the debate just recently is, of course, uh, with this most recent election cycle, where some of our brothers and sisters have perceived evangelicals, sort of conservative evangelicals, to be this kind of political movement that got Donald Trump elected. And I understand why some of them would think that, even though a lot of very prominent conservative evangelicals were very much in opposition to the popularity of and the rise of Donald Trump. Nevertheless, I understand you look at the voting trends, but but we have brothers and sisters who, because they perceive that our president in a certain way, have felt very much distant now from the whole category of conservative evangelicals. If, if that's what you are, then I don't want to be a part of yeah. you. Uh, so, sort well, that's of one reason why I really appreciate my church and the confessionalism in it. It's because we have mm-hmm. different political views in my church yeah. and we can um, sharpen one another mm-hmm. in that way because what we're subscribing to are our confessions, mm-hmm. not to a political party. Mm-hmm. And I think evangelicalism can do that on the left and on the right very mm-hmm. easily, identifying themselves yeah. with different political parties. Yeah, you know, the answer, and I think this bears directly on what you just said, Amy, the answer for someone like, you know, Lecrae in leaving, quote, white evangelicalism, is not to now go to progressive evangelicalism and to go to a church that waves the banner for Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. That's that's not the answer. And so I would say to Lecrae or anybody else, you ought to go to a confessionally reformed church. Mm-hmm. Because if they're a faithful confessionally reformed church, they're not going to get up there and wave national flags and do party politics and have politicians come in and speak from the pulpit. In fact, they'll forbid that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's just the thought. Yeah. Well, as always, you know, for a fundamentalist, you know, the question is, uh, you know, whatever the question is, I know the answer is Jesus. I think for us on this point, <laughs> whatever the question is, the answer is go to a confessional reform. That's right. <laughs> so, That's right. So, well, I want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. Remember, we're a, a listener-supported podcast, so if the Spirit leads you to make a donation, do not quench the Spirit, but uh, please make a donation on our website. And we look forward to being with you next time. I'm empty and aching and I don't know why. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all come to look for America. All come to look for America. All come to look for America.
Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. We have a couple of giveaways this week. One is a book, Here We Stand, by James Montgomery Boyce, uh, looking at the great doctrines of the Reformation. And the other is an MP3 download, uh, What is Happening to the Evangelicals. Uh, Here we stand. We've got a couple of copies of that to give away. Please enter for a chance to win that. And everybody is able to download the MP3. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about what would be some of the distinguishing marks between the fundamentalism of of Machen's era and the fundamentalism that we so often know in evangelicalism today. But I think on a whole, the the, the macro narrative of Protestantism leading to progress and leading to, to the wonders of the modern world, it's a more ambiguous narrative than Protestants have typically cared to make it. That interview is next time. Join us then. to look for America. Counting the cars on the New Jersey turnpike. Mm -hmm. That's a good one.